listener production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Katrina Blowers. It is Tuesday, September 7. And today, the second part of our two-part podcast with Dr. Nick Coatesworth, dispelling those vaccination conspiracy theories. So we talk about vaccines for kids, what the future could look like, and when and if we're going to need a booster shot. The AstraZeneca vaccine gives you longer protection and you're less likely to need a booster or at least less likely to need it as quickly as we will with the Pfizer vaccines. So he really talks up the AstraZeneca vaccine and that's something interesting to note if you're on the fence about which one to get. So that's Dr Nick Coatesworth. He joins Antoinette Latouf and I in the second part of this episode to shoot down some more vaccine myths. If you haven't heard that first part, uh, go back and listen to that one. That was played yesterday. But it's a big hello to Annika who is here with the headlines. Sydney hospitals are calling back nurses from vaccination hubs and preparing to turn operating theatres into intensive care units as they brace for those 2,000 cases a day of COVID. Yeah, so this comes after brand new modelling was handed to the New South Wales government by Melbourne's Burnett Institute and it points to Sydney's worst affected COVID-19 areas having that number of cases a day as soon as next week. New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian didn't release all the data, instead releasing worst case scenario modelling for the 12 local areas of concern. We're likely to reach a peak in cases in the next week or so. Uh, That's what the modelling tells us and therefore a likely peak in intensive care beds required uh, around um, early to mid-October. So that's Gladys Berejiklian. Now, this modelling includes a four-step plan which is based on current trends until the end of November with impact levels on ICU operations reaching overwhelming in the next two months. So not so great if you live in those areas and you're in need of an operation that is not COVID-related. No, New South Wales reported 1,281 new local COVID cases on Monday and sadly six deaths. One of those was an Aboriginal woman in her 70s who was from a remote community near Burke. Yeah, this was a grandmother who died at Dubbo Hospital. Now she had not received a vaccine. Meanwhile, Victoria saw its biggest rise in daily case numbers this year and in mystery cases. 125 of yesterday's 246 new cases have not been linked to any known outbreak yet. Yeah, so in Queensland, Annika, I can't believe we in Queensland continue to keep dodging a bullet here. A a lockdown is now looking less likely with no increase so far in that Delta cluster, which was sparked by the truckie at the nail salon. Although contact tracing is still underway because uh, a lot of naughty people didn't check in using their app. Police will continue investigating how a toddler missing in the New South Wales Hunter region for four days kept himself alive. In the best possible news for the family and everybody watching at home, the footage was quite amazing. Three-year-old Anthony AJ Alphalak was located shortly before midday yesterday. It was unbelievable. A police helicopter spotting him in a creek bed drinking muddy water when an SES searcher walked up to him. The boy turned around and smiled. The boy's dad telling reporters the family was amazed he was found because the area had been searched extensively in the days since AJ disappeared. We have searched the area head to toe, SES, with police. The first day it happened, I went around with the police. 
and I don't know, it's just, yeah, it's a miracle. So the commander of the Hunter Valley Police District, Tracy Chapman, said AJ being so close to a water supply would have definitely helped him survive. Uh, he has some cuts on his legs, but otherwise completely fine. Superintendent Chapman said police will continue to look into his disappearance. We will still be continuing our inquiries to try to understand uh, what's occurred over the past three days and, and how it came to be that we found him after three days. Yeah, so I was in the newsroom yesterday, Annika, watching as that footage came in and the reaction of the family. Oh my gosh, I had tears in my eyes as I was watching that, just imagining what they've been through and just receiving the best possible news after fearing the absolute worst. Yeah, it was incredible, wasn't it? Especially in these social distancing times, seeing them embrace and celebrate. It was amazing. The second day of a national summit on women's safety continues today with our PM conceding Australia has a problem with the way it treats women. Every day they are forced to change their own behaviours because men won't. Holding their keys like a weapon, going for their run before it gets dark, ignoring innuendo and putting up with the boys clubs. The foundation of respect for women in Australian society is not what it should be. Australian women still don't feel safe and indeed they're not. That's Scott Morrison there giving his opening address. He also promised to be open-minded and ambitious as the summit provides the foundations of the government's next national plan to reduce violence against women. So a woman is killed by her partner every nine days in Australia, the PM calling that figure a national shame. Annika, do you think he got the tone right or do you think some people will just kind of look at it as a bit of too little too late? Look, there'll always be those people. I think some people were disappointed with the way he spoke yesterday. That's always going to be the case. I think this is a pretty difficult area for the Prime Minister to come into. I think despite that frustration, we should be happy this is happening. He might not get there in his Prime Ministership. I don't think this is an issue that's going to be solved within the next few years, but surely just starting down this road is something we should all be very happy about. And the Taliban has claimed total control over Afghanistan. It says it has won a long-running conflict in the Panjshir Valley, the last remaining holdout of resistance against their rule. The Islamic Emirate decided to send military forces to get rid of this violent nest of terrorism. We want a peaceful country, and if anybody causes problems or causes insecurity, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan will make a decision and not allow anyone to congregate and act against our government. That's Chief Spokesman Zabihullah Mujahid there speaking at a press conference this morning, that audio from Al Jazeera. Mujahid said overnight an interim government is just days away. The Taliban has pledged to be more inclusive than during their first stint in power, including offering freedoms for women and girls. But it does come on the same day dozens of women were met with tear gas and pepper spray when they took to the streets in Kabul to demand work rights and a role in the future government. Up next, Antoinette Latouf jumps in. We are talking to Dr Nick Coatsworth. It's the second part of our fascinating chat where we are debunking a whole lot of COVID vaccine myths, including vaccinating children and when you are going to need or if you are going to need that pesky booster shot. Katrina Blowers and Antoinette Latouf back here with you for our deep dive on the briefing topic for today. Now, there are so many myths and misinformation circulating about COVID and vaccines and 
We've invited Dr Nick Coatesworth on the briefing to talk through some of those issues. So this is part two of our interview with Dr Nick and if you missed yesterday's briefing, make sure you jump into our feed to check it out. One of the things we're also keen to explore is what happens next. You know, so much talk has been about you know, 16 plus population and getting to that double jabbed rate of 70 or 80%. But we know it doesn't end there. The next thing that people are considering, particularly overseas, these conversations are further along, is vaccinations for children. How safe are they for our children? Antoinette, I don't think there's any reason to suspect that they won't be safe. But there's two important things here. The first one is that we have based all our decision-making around looking at the science and looking at the trials and looking at tens, if not hundreds of thousands of volunteers getting these jabs and, and making sure that they're safe. And the trials in under 12s for a lot of the vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, are, are still going on. It's actually important that we wait for those. There's a second element to it, which is about the general ethics of our vaccination campaign. And Usually for a vaccine to be marketed, you need a beneficial effect for the individual and you need a beneficial effect for society. Now, if COVID's just causing a very mild disease in under 12s, all you're giving it for is to protect other people. And that's where we have to start to question whether it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. We just need to very clearly distinguish a benefit for kids. And at the moment, it's clear that even with the Delta variant, COVID is a very mild disease for under 12s. So we've got schools in New South Wales going back in late October. Um, we had a schools cluster up here in Queensland and, and kids are back in the classroom again, albeit wearing masks. Um, many people are saying, you know, should we be sending children out into the world unvaccinated? What are the real risks there? I think it's definitely going to be safe to do that because the number of children that are actually getting unwell with this is really quite small. If you look at the Sydney Kids Hospital Network, the main reason for admission is actually for children whose parents are really sick with COVID-19. And so the parents get crook, the kids can't get looked after, they've got COVID, but they're just not actually that unwell and they need somewhere to be looked after. The number of children who actually were admitted with respiratory conditions was only two, it might have gone up to three now, out of around about a thousand. Now that is a tiny um, proportion. None of those children have gone to intensive care and they've all been discharged well. One of the things I've been hearing about um, from overseas is anecdotal reports of teenagers in particular being hit with long COVID. Is that something we need to be worried about? Oh, look, I certainly think long COVID's a, a syndrome. As an infectious disease physician, I would see in a busy clinic probably one patient a week who's had a virus, this is before COVID times, who's had a virus that they haven't recovered from and they describe months of just not feeling right, doctor. So sometimes it's related to just viruses and the way humans respond to them. But this is a new virus and we need to understand how many people are truly being affected by long COVID. So I think it's an important thing for current and future study. I'm not sure it's a, a reason why we would not let schools back. Now, we do want to vaccinate over 12s. We know that, Atagi said that, but I think the real debate is whether we, uh, we vaccinate under 12s. There's not going to be much cause to keep under 12s away from school whilst we make that decision. That would be far too damaging for primary school aged children because I do think that decision on under 12s is probably many months away and we need to get them back to school. 
So what I'm hearing, and if this is a fair summary, when it comes to low COVID and teenagers, we just don't know yet. I think it exists. It definitely exists. We just don't know the proportion that it exists in. Now, if we consider that the studies are so wide ranging, some studies say one in 100 people get long COVID, some people say one in 10, we just don't have enough information. So it is an issue. I would suggest that the younger you are, the less of a problem it is, which is the case with all symptoms of COVID, including long COVID. Hey, how long are you covered for once you've had your two jabs? Is it something you're going to need to get updated every year, like the flu vaccine? What's the longevity of this? Well, this is the interesting and and somewhat sad thing for the Australian vaccine program and where we are now. It actually appears that the AstraZeneca vaccine gives you longer protection and you're less likely to need a booster or at least less likely to need it as quickly as we will with the Pfizer vaccines. I suspect people who've had Pfizer will need to consider boosters sooner, sometime in the next six to 12 months. This is something that Atagi's got a lot of focus on at the moment. We've also got to remember that there is um, a whole heap of people around the world in low middle income countries that haven't even had their first shot, let alone their booster shot. And the more we allow COVID to circulate in those communities, the more likely there will be to be a variant that is escaping the vaccine. We also need to balance this need for boosters in in high-income countries with actual primary vaccination courses in low-middle-income countries. The vaccine rollout has been pretty terrible here. And what's to say the same won't be the case for boosters and the next phase of managing this terrible virus, given other, you know, OECD countries are well on into their journey of, if not administering, if not at least having those conversations about boosters? There's no doubt that we would have liked the rollout to happen faster. There have been hiccups, there have been booking errors, there's certainly been supply issues. You can imagine that every stage we get through, we're seeing things smoother and smoother and smoother. In fact, between state and federal governments in New South Wales, they're vaccinating amongst the highest rate that's ever been vaccinated during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think some of those significant glitches early on are being really well ironed out and it'll just be part of our national immunisation program. So our national immunisation program pre-COVID, one of the most successful in the world and I think that'll be the case for booster shots as well. And when people talk about hospitalisations in places like Israel and the UK, those those who may be vaccine hesitant, vaccine suspicious, right through to anti-vaxxer will say, people are still going to hospital. It shows the vaccines aren't working. But what can you tell me about those who are hospitalised and the severity of the illness once they're double jabbed? So it'll always be less than it otherwise was if you weren't vaccinated. And the degree to which it's less is about 90%. So for someone who's older, say over 60, who might have smoked for most of their life, this could mean the difference between living and dying the vaccine. So you could still go to intensive care, for sure you could. And that's no different to other viruses like influenza um, that we get vaccinated for. We don't get sort of sterilising immunity where you actually don't get the virus. You get what we would call an attenuated form of the virus where the disease severity is less. So it's got nothing to do with the vaccines working or not working. They're definitely working. It's that in some people who have a lot of other medical conditions, that risk reduction won't be enough and they will still go to ICU. And yes, some people may still die with the vaccine, but it'll be many, many hundreds, if not thousands times less.
Thank you again for joining us. And um, I guess you must be getting a bit sick of answering these questions over and over again yourself. <laughs> oh, look, not at all happy. To, I think we're going to be doing it for a while yet. And um, I'm seeing the results of people not getting vaccinated on mm. COVID wards as, as I treat them as well. So I just uh, encourage every lister that we've got to get those vaccines. Um, Antoinette, uh, Katrina, get your families vaccinated. Mm. All those WhatsApp groups, we just need to get the message out there. So that was Dr Nick Coatsworth, who's the former Deputy Chief Medical Officer. We covered so much ground there, everything from booster shots to, you know, when you can get a jab after you've actually had COVID and just basically dispelling myths. I know as a journalist covering so many COVID stories, these are the the questions that I get asked by people, you know, just out in the community. And it's really nice to be able to provide some credible information to answer some of those questions. You know, and some people feel that they're sick of talking about COVID and I get it. But later in the week, we'll be examining what sort of conversations you should be having with your children. How much do they need to know? How concerned should you be about their mental health? And a bit of a spoiler alert, step away from the press conference and television every day because children don't necessarily need to hear that. Yeah, turn off the TV. That discussion about COVID and your kids is coming up on Thursday. Are you okay day? We want to make sure our kids are okay. Tomorrow, we are talking about the new hustle. Don't work harder, just work better. Listener.